Good morning and welcome to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. My name is Eleanor. Uh, our theme song is a little bit crackly this morning, but hopefully that won't be a reflection of how the show goes. Uh, I'm definitely not superstitious. It, it's certainly not a, a bad omen. Um, but I guess we'll, we'll find out. Um, so you're joining us here on 2XXFM. Uh, if you're listening online, thank you for joining us. Uh, and I'm very, very lucky to be joined in the studio today by two representatives from the National Dinosaur Museum of Australia. Uh, I've got in the studio with me Mitchell. Hello. And Phil. How's it going? Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, it's very exciting to have you in because I know for a fact both of you are very good at talking, uh, which is what you need for radio. Um, <laughs> kind of talk for a living, so. <laughs> well, there you go. And and now we're in the exact right environment to make use of that. Um, so we've got we've got kind of a, a weird assortment of things to discuss in this show, but I think the the overarching theme is going to be weird creatures, uh, maybe things that have died a very very long time ago, maybe things that have strange life cycles. Certainly, a lot of those in uh, in the long history of the Earth, there are some very bizarre creatures and and long dead critters that are just fascinating when you learn about them. So well, I have yeah. to I have to make a confession, and that is and. and I think maybe Mitchell might be the best person to to kind of confirm or deny if this is accurate, but I am under the impression, and maybe this is a generalisation, that nerdy children fall onto a spectrum from dinosaurs to space. Yeah, that's they're the two main two main gateways to science really. You get kids early with dinosaurs or space and then if yeah, if you stick them on those paths then they, you can grow some little scientists. And is it is it fair to say that you were perhaps a dinosaur person, Mitchell? Yes, I was very much the dinosaur school of yeah, nerdy see, children. See, yes. I was I was a space kid, so I I don't know. Like dinosaurs, <laughs> they they're cool, right? But I I've never had that sort of real excitement about fossils. But I think since meeting since meeting you, Mitchell, you've kind of lit that interest in me a little bit so hopefully you can do that for our listeners today dinosaurs are awesome well but, but so everyone it's, says it brings out the fight like you can go oh but dinosaurs are awesome they've got big teeth and you go yeah but space has meteorites and we kill the dinosaurs yeah. <laughs> well the, space one the one thing they do have in common is those unimaginable scales like dinosaurs lived just mind-bogglingly long times ago and space is just mind-bogglingly big that's true actually yeah. so maybe it's the that very nature of of things that we can't quite get our head around, so timescales. Chi- childlike wonder. Yeah. yeah. Well, I... I, can, I was going to say, I can try and mend you both by going, well, you're dealing with the same sort of time, so you both like things that are hundreds of millions of years old. How, how about that? That's, that's true. true. Yeah, 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 no, that's yeah. definitely yeah. one Building way of bridges. looking at it. <laughs> oh, there's Phil just, just mending all the feuds between yeah. ast- astronaut kids and <laughs> yeah, yeah, paleontological so. <laughs> kids out there. Um, Phil... I wanted to ask you something that perhaps isn't as, as tied in with dinosaurs, but is, is sort of on that theme of bizarre creatures. I know you've just written a little bit of a piece on starfish. Yeah, starfish. Well, it does kind of tie in with prehistory and things because starfish are a very old group. Okay. Um, but yeah, starfish are the weird, some of the weirdest creatures on the planet. Like, um, if, you, if you've got a weirdometer, they'd be at the top. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so, I mean, my understanding of starfish is that they're kind of crackly, gross little things that you see on the beach. Some people seem to think they're really pretty. I think they're a bit alien and, and weird looking. And some of them can look very strange and quite nasty looking as well. Um, yeah, like the crown of thorns does not look like something you want to pick up. Yeah, no, that's and it's it's causing a lot of problems. They eat reefs, don't they? They do. And, and the problem with the crown of thorns actually comes back to part of what we were talking about in the article, why they're so strange, um, the way they breed, for instance, you know. Um, People weren't aware, so they'd, they'd pick up, they'd try and save the reef by picking up the crown of thorns and cutting them in half and things going, there you go, I've killed it. And suddenly they've got twice as many starfish. It's like the hydra. You yeah. cut off its head and it becomes stronger. Well, with these things, just cut off an arm. As long as it's got a tiny little bit of its brain's stem on it, it wow. will regrow an entirely new individual. So I think the, the question you, um, you asked me the other night when we were chatting about this was if I'd ever seen a baby starfish. Yeah. And I couldn't give you a straight answer i don't think i'd ever seen a baby starfish you probably have or you may have but baby starfish don't look like starfish okay that's star the starfish form is the adult or the juvenile form the baby starfish are like a bilateral animal they're just like us both sides are equal and that's the left side and the right side of the body 
And so they like little. Are they like little fish or? They kind of like little fry. Yeah, little okay. fry, and they swim I, around. They're free fly, swimming. I, I knew we were going to talk about this, so I looked them up. They look like the weirdest little things. They look kind of like they're they're bilateral, so they're symmetrical on the left and right. Yeah. But they've got all these little weird tentacly things coming off them. They look like fish Cthulhu kind of. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I actually did think. Yeah, some of them do look a lot more like jellyfish maybe than than something else. But yeah, but they're free swimming. They they're, they're happy little things that swim around. And then at some point they mature and they kind of absorb and eat the left side of the body and out of the right side of the body grows the entire starfish form. So so they, they eat the other half of themselves. Yeah, they kind of, they're a creature that eats themselves to become themselves. And then, and then that's, where, that's when we start seeing them looking the, the, like Yeah, the, the, like the more five pattern. And it's not always five. The, you know, lots of starfish have lots more arms than that. But basically a five star pattern is there. Uh, the entire echinoderm family have a... So starfish, crinoids, um, sea cucumbers, sea urchins as well. Oh, sea, yeah, yeah, urchins. They, would they go through a similar thing? The yep, spiky yep, the, sea it, urchins. All, the entire echinoderm family do that. So, wow, freaky little things. Yeah, that's definitely a, a, one of the stranger life cycles. Um, there are yeah. there are an assortment of creatures that I think start off looking really creepy and different to how they end up. Mm. Um, the one I was reading about the other day is that uh, that toad that incubates its babies in the flesh on its back yeah is, this, is it the Suriname toad uh that one i know about the gastric yeah the gastric brooding frog so what does the gastric brooding frog do so you know how a uh, marsupials grow their nurture their young in a yeah. pouch okay essentially what the gastric brooding frog does is lay all of its eggs and then eat them it eats its it it's, eats its own it, eggs it eats its own eggs and so once it produces once it lay, lays its eggs its stomach goes into this weird change it stops producing stomach acid and the lining of its stomach completely changes and instead of laying its eggs into a pond it pretty much just turns its stomach into a nice little safe incubator wow. for its eggs and then what happens when the eggs hatch when the eggs hatch you got this frog <laughs> just sitting there on its little lily pad or whatever and it just goes and all of these little baby frogs start crawling out of its mouth some kind of like <laughs> nightmare that sounds like yeah. like all my worst nightmares combined. Pretty much, and I believe they're they're either extinct or they're they're, they're getting so critically endangered that they're considered extinct unless they find some somewhere. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about that actually. Yeah, they're I think quite they are, they're yeah. getting quite rare. Probably because, like all things, collectors collect things and and museums go out and pick up the individuals and suddenly there's no more of these very rare things around that's yeah. happening actually, mm. actually happening with the coelacanth at the moment oh yeah. okay yeah, the coelacanth's yeah. the the huge that prehistoric giant, fish yeah that they found still living and then every museum went out and went we want one and of the few thousand individuals that were gone half of them suddenly went to museums and they went wow yeah we probably should stop this <laughs> yeah i mean that's i guess that's one of the downsides i mean museums are are incredible places to go and and learn things and have specimens on display but if you're taking them from from where they're currently living with with little concern for how many are left then or, or doing it before you realize how many are left There's, okay you know, you know if you just f suddenly find a new thing you haven't done any sort of survey you don't know how many are there so you could be taking the last few individuals yeah that's true because um, you, you spent some time working at the smithsonian didn't you phil yeah and uh the london natural history museum oh so wow that's, that one's freaky cool. and so is it i like, I, I can't imagine, do you have like an emotional response to being in that close contact to sort of historical objects of great significance? Or is it more the science and the, and the is it sort of a, we must sort these things rationally or is it tied in with a lot of... I'm sure most people do that, but my, my, my background is more the history of things. Yeah. So I know the people and stuff. So yeah. when you're picking up something, like uh, I was, a book came out called Dry Storm Number One. It was all about... Um, the weird sort of backstories at the Natural History Museum. And I was telling my boss about it. We were mm. sorting through some dry fish. Yeah. And he kind of went, do you have any idea what room we're in? And we were in dry store room number one. <laughs> and then the next box I opened were actually dried fish from um, Livingston. Wow. So going, and you're like, this is Livingston you know, going <laughs> through Africa and I'm holding it. That's just weird. Yeah. So so you do sort of get that kind yeah. of... Especially, you know, when you're getting holding something from Darwin or... Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I even got a bit sort of misty-eyed seeing the handwritten exhibition that was at the uh national library a couple of years ago now yep. just seeing seeing things that darwin had written like behind glass yeah it's like wow that <laughs> he held that pen and he made those marks that's so cool um so i can't imagine like sifting through old boxes of 
of mysterious items and realizing the significance of them. There's also um, just the way you look at things. Um, So yeah, like uh, one of my jobs was type specimens, you know, like a very specific sort of fish. The the initial description is off an individual and that's the type specimen. Mm. So if somebody's studying that fish, you'll have to send it to them like a German or whoever, and then they'll send it back eventually. So my job was to, you know, get the specimen, send it away, protect it, bring it back, put it back in its jar. And one of the one of these fish came back and got the jar and it was really dirty and I went to my boss, oh, should I clean the jar? It's really hideous. Like, you haven't read this, the label, have you? It was like 1831 HM Beagle. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'm holding a fish that Charles Darwin caught. But then my boss just goes, oh, well, you're Australian, you like this. And casually next to his desk, he just grabs a jar gives it to me and it's a fish and it just has a label on it saying HM Endeavour Banks. <laughs> <laughs> it's jars older than my country. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean that I I wouldn't I don't think I'd cope. I'd get too too flustered. That's what I mean. You do you do kind of get starstruck and yeah, um, yeah it's getting amazing. starstruck by jars of fish yeah, yeah, is yeah. probably one of the weirder things. Some two hundred million year old dead thing. Well, look, we've got <laughs> we've got some some very ancient dead things to talk about uh, coming up soon. Yeah, um, Mitch is one. Mitch is Mitch <laughs> is an ancient dead thing. No, that's not true. Mitchell is very much alive and happy and youthful. Mm-hmm. He, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about uh, something with one of the coolest names. Um, to come out of, well, maybe one of the coolest names to come out of Australian dinosaur history. We're going to talk about Lightning Claw in a second. Uh, But first, we've got a track called East Coast Girl by Cayucas. That was East Coast Girl by Cayucas. I think it's one of the more summery tunes that I've got on my playlist today. Uh, you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. It's your weekly dose of science on a Sunday morning. My name is Eleanor and I'm in the studio with Phil and Mitchell, both from the National Dinosaur Museum. Uh, we've been talking about starfish, which, uh, you know, have, have roots in, in prehistoric times. Uh, but we're going to start discussing uh, one of the more exciting discoveries of the last... What? How? How long are we talking, Mitchell? You said it was it was a long time coming. Yeah. See, the paper was only actually published uh, early this week or late within last, the last week. Yeah, within, within the last couple within, of weeks. Within the last couple of weeks, but it was actually dug up in the 1990s. Wow. Uh, so the lightning claw is this collection of bones from Lightning Ridge, hence the name, uh, and from a large meat-eating dinosaur, a theropod dinosaur. Uh, it doesn't actually have a scientific name, so the lightning claw is kind of the nickname for this specimen. Okay. Uh, so what you're looking at is, you know, a claw bone, a toe bone, part of a hip bone, and a few other bits and pieces. Not enough to name a new dinosaur off. Okay. Essentially. So you need you need to have like a, a minimum amount of dinosaur before you can classify it as a new species. Theoretically. Or? Theoretically, <laughs> it just, okay. It mostly just needs to be distinct enough. Okay. So when we're talking about the type specimens early with those fish, what you'll need is a point of comparison for when you're finding other dinosaurs. Right. So, for example, this lightning claw is being compared to another Australian meat-eating dinosaur found in Queensland called Australovenator. Australovenator is known from about 30% of its skeleton or something close to that. Okay. Which is enough to go, hey, if you find a few bones like you've done, with, like we've done with the lightning claw there's enough there to compare it to Australovenator and go, is it the same thing or not? Okay, so so basically they've got like a standard now that they can compare to and they've established that they've got um, fossilised bones of something that isn't that, that dinosaur. So they, they think it's something new. The, the lightning claw is something distinct from... See, this is, this is where it gets tricky <laughs> because we've got only about 30% of Australovenator and only a few bits and pieces of lightning claw and only one or two elements of those overlap. Okay. So, for example, the bit one of the big pieces that they have in common is the claw. Yeah. So it's a thumb claw. The Australovenator and this lightning claw both belong to a group of meat-eating dinosaurs that are kind of built the opposite way to T-Rex. So you know how you, T-Rex has got that great big buff head yeah. and those hilariously small arms? Oh, that's so comical and adorable. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Australovenator and the lightning claw belong to a group called the Megaraptorids which have got these enormous arms and massive finger claws, but more lightly built heads. Okay. So they've got the famous claw from Lightning Claw and Australovenator, 
the claw from Lightning Claw is a little bit bigger than that of Australovenator. Sure. Uh, so, which is... But it could just be an older specimen or yeah, an I individual mean, or... That's it. Um, but the toe bones from Lightning Claw that they've got, we have from Australovenator, the toe bones are slightly smaller. Okay, so so they've got it's they've got a bigger claw but smaller toes, and that's enough of a, a hint that it could be something that is actually distinct rather than a baby or an adult version yeah. of. It's enough to go, hey, we're not going to call this thing Australovenator right now. Okay. Yeah. And so, how much how much more work needs to be done? I mean, uh, are there still digs going on for at Lightning Ridge, or are they sort of calling it a day? I mean, I guess it was in the 90s. So yeah. Probably... The... It wasn't really a dig, though. It yeah. The... Miners. There's, oh, okay. opal miners. The problem with... Well, not the problem, but... Yeah, well, it, it is a problem. It is. <laughs> it's a, it's a, for us. It's a problem for us paleontologists, yeah. The, the, uh, the issue at Lightning Ridge is that it's not paleontologists that are digging for these things. It's opal miners. Okay, so I've heard about fossils being opalized. Is that what we're talking about with lightning claw? Is that's, he? That's exactly what we're talking about with lightning claw. Lightning claw is partially opalized. Okay. Um, the problem with opalized fossils, if the is that if the opal is good enough, the opal miners will just cut the bones up and sell them as jewelry opals and stuff like that. Specimen that's, opals. I yeah. mean, that's a bit sad. It is a little bit sad. So we're not really sure what we've lost in the past because they we've heard stories of wondrous things being found mm. but they've just smashed them up to get the opal to get out the of them, opals so, so um, there could be i mean if you've got some opal jewelry out there listeners you might actually hold a piece of this puzzle well <laughs> opal is itself in a way not really a fossil but it's a remnant of the dinosaur age because it's um basically the remnants of the uramanga sea so basically okay. during the dinosaur age if you're here once you get over the great dividing range mm. from the great dividing range all the way to perth there's nothing there's no mountains there's no anything yeah so when the pot, the caps melt, there's no ice on the caps. Ocean re- levels rise, and the centre of Australia floods. Wow! So it was a very shallow, warm ocean, Lovely. and then eventually it got trapped, and then uh, stagnated, and and started to evaporate, and all the minerals and condensed in the water, and then started to seep into the ground, and coated anything they found in the ground. So fossils, shells, and so that's and that's where we get our our opals from. That's ninety five percent of the world's opal comes from that. That's incredible that process. Yeah. And and so the and then. As you say, the downside to that is it can obscure um, sort of archaeologically interesting things. Yeah, so the big problem with opals is the opal forms in gaps in the rock. Gaps in the rock, fossils. <laughs> yeah, so you end up with all these little opalized dinosaur teeth and opalized claws and opalized pine cones and opalized brachia, like little mollusky things and all these other bits and pieces that are all fascinating and incredibly useful for paleontologists to figure out what life in the Aramanga Sea and on the shoreline of Aramanga Sea, which was the environment that the lightning claw was living in, finding out what these environments were like is just all getting chopped up into opals. Wow. Uh, you've been on you've been on a couple of digs before, haven't you, Mitchell? Yeah, so I spent eight months last year working at the Australian Age of Dinosaur Museum out in Winton in Western Queensland, absolute middle of nowhere, <laughs> where they're digging up dinosaurs. So on the on the shoreline of the Aramanga Sea again, which is where they found Australovenator. I was working with some of Australovenator's fo- the Australovenator fossils last year. That's amazing. And so what's it what's it like being out there? I guess it is it. Uh, I can only imagine the heat and hard work out in the sun. Uh, you seem to see a lot of people at digs with hats and sunscreen and yeah. looking a bit you, burnt and fed up. You do the digs in the middle of winter. It's uh, still not the not the coolest. I guess it, the middle of winter in Western Queensland is probably like a late Canberra spring. Yeah, <laughs> it gets it gets cold at night. Yeah. Um, but I I was joking last year about how I missed I missed winter. Because it was just just, warm constantly. It was summer and then got a little bit of autumn and then went straight back into summer again. Um, But, but, you know, a good tan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) Because that's always... (laughs) That's our first first concern as scientists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how we look. Exactly. That's it. it. But, yeah, no, you can draw a landscape out there with a ruler. It's just the horizon and that's it. Wow. Um, But, yeah, out in the middle middle of somebody's sheep paddock, Hmm. you push all the cow pats out of the way and start digging for fossils essentially so what what's what's it like actually finding something is it is it rare to come across something or is it sort of a gradual process you find a bit and then you find another bit or well yeah the 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 problem is out out there because it's so flat you've got to get underneath the soil yeah to get at the rock okay fossils are in so you'll find a few bits and pieces of smashed weathered bone on the surface that have kind of broken free of the 
the bedrock and move their way up through the topsoil to get mm. to the top. And you've got bone on the top. You've got to scrounge around for scraps and bits and pieces. That tells you that there's something underneath. Yeah. But you don't ever know how much is okay. underneath until you get down there. So you get little little signals that there might be something. Oh, yeah. And, okay. and sometimes you can find some pretty spectacular stuff. That's amazing. So like Australovanator, uh, the specimen, the type specimen of Australovanator is nicknamed Banjo. And Banjo was found together with a sauropod dinosaur, the long-necked dinosaurs, together in essentially a billabong. It's a really small area that's absolutely chockers full of bone. So this sauropod dinosaurs got mired in this billabong and Banjo's come along and had a bit of a feed and got sat on or stepped on or something. Wow. And ended up getting buried as well. So you actually, you sort of get little glimpses into individual stories. Yeah, like behaviour and, that's and exactly things like it. that. Yep. Most, mostly tragedies. <laughs> um, <laughs> mostly bad things yeah, because, if you've died in a billabong. Because they're all... Yeah, there's a lot of birthday parties. They're all dead. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you get some pretty, pretty incredible stories. Uh, so another one was of an animal that was uh, died on a on a river bank yeah um we it was a dig they were finding all the big bones yeah uh 50 meters down 50 meters along they found another dig site with all the smaller bones so what we think was happening was this animal had died on the riverbed and all of its bones had got washed died along the side of a river sorry all of its bones had been washed along the river some ways sure all the heavier bones sunk oh, first or the yeah. lighter bones got washed up on another sandbar oh that's awesome and so yeah you got to kind of got to puzzle these things out a little bit as well that's really cool that's yeah. like that's like analytical chemistry i'm just going back to the areas where i feel comfortable <laughs> but that's exactly how we separate compounds in in chemistry is you know run them not along a riverbed but basically <laughs> and the bigger things sink first and the smaller things go further so that's it's really cool the, the collision of those different sciences it's pretty cool it also can cause problems though so the famous brontosaurus yeah. So they found That's my the body. favorite. Yep. And uh, it had no head because heads are very small and light and they wash away. Yeah. So they found a skull kind of not really anywhere near it at all mm. and just assumed exactly what uh, Mitch was just saying, that it had washed away. That must be the head because they're so rare. Yeah, and we've got a body here and, and there's a head over there. So they stuck match. it on and uh, it was the entirely wrong head. And how long How long did they think? <laughs> Almost instantly they recognized it. Okay, they just forgot good. to tell everyone. Oh. So Brontosaurus... So Changed to a patasaurus almost instantly. So there has been no such dinosaur as a brontosaurus for nearly a century. Yeah, I was going to say that that's something I sort of vaguely remember hearing. Yeah. I was told brontosauruses aren't real and your little childish drawings of a tiny-headed, long-necked, big-bodied thing is, is yep. make-believe. Well, is by that... about 1910, like they, they, it was all in all the scientific publications, just nobody – there were oh, see, fabulous was... radio shows like this back then. Oh. See what I did there? <laughs> oh. And uh, – <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, nobody that, nobody knew. So they kept, you know, thanks to Fred Flintstone and everything, everyone kept calling them brontosauruses and kids have called them brontosauruses and it's taken us a century to uh, basically, well, the last 30 years going, there's no such thing as brontosaurus until this year when they discovered actually there is. Wait, wait, so, wait. Yeah. Okay, hold on. Yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the great things about science. Everybody's constantly looking at it and you get fresh eyes on a thing and new techniques develop and stuff like this. So there's this study earlier this year uh, where a group of people got together and went, okay, we've let's set out. We're going to look at all of the specimens from the Morrison Formation, which Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus and Brachiosaurus, Stegosaurus, a few other dinosaurs come from. All the Let, classics. Yeah, yeah, all the classics. Yeah. Uh, let's look at this formation and figure out, look at all of the long-necked dinosaurs, essentially. And this is how different they need to be to be a different species or a different genus. Set all our stuff out at the beginning and look at everything. And they looked at everything and turns out that these specimens that were used to be originally called Brontosaurus were just different enough from Apatosaurus to be their own genus again. Right. And so they just went with the convenience of renaming it what well, everyone thought it was? Yeah, the specimen, the specimen, the original specimen was Brontosaurus excelsus. Yeah. Uh, it got renamed. It was, like, it's still a, it was still a different species, but it was just lumped in with Apatosaurus. So sure. It, it, it used to be Apatosaurus excelsus this time last year. Okay. But this speci this original specimen of Brontosaurus excelsus turned out it was different enough from the other Apatosaurus species that it was a different genus. Right. So it was it, so it got its old name back essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is this is something that we see in science a lot, and I think it's something that people who who maybe don't do the hands on science or aren't sort of as embroiled in the you know reading the journals and seeing what happens they they get a bit frustrated perhaps that 
the the very nature of science is that we come up with an explanation to something and then you know six months down the track go oh no that's that's not right we'll we'll explain it like this or yeah. in this case a hundred years down the track go no there we will establish there are no brontosauruses and then a week later go oh actually oh, oh we got it we stuffed up <laughs> sorry well we didn't we did <laughs> that guy yeah, twenty yeah. years ago it's his fault blame yeah, him it's their fault and that's 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 something that's that's really lovely about the scientific process is sort of hashing that stuff out and and being kind of in a position of freedom to to identify errors and go yeah. back and change things you're, and not, you're not stuck going no 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 i'm not listening <laughs> i i don't like a patasaurus i don't like brontosaurus i'm going to keep calling it a pencil too bad it's it, a thing again it's a now. thing again yeah oh. so it's self-correcting it's great that's really cool um so just going back to the dig site mm. because you, so you find a thing in the rock yep like a, a fossil thing yeah yeah so this is everybody like everybody kind of romanticizes and then you up brush dinosaurs. it up like you have a paintbrush and you you blow on it Looking gently like and Indiana you, Jones. Oh, yeah you, that's you put it. your yeah you tip your hat a little bit and <laughs> that, you that first scene in Jurassic Park where they got the the brushes picking away the bones out of it occasionally that does happen you get really nice get really nice fossils in really soft rock you can pull them out with your hands but it's very very rare so how do you get a fossil out of rock without hurting it yeah so the out out of the out at the digs in winton a lot of the time that the a lot of the time the rocks that the fossils are in are harder than the fossils themselves <laughs> that's so unfortunate you, you spend maybe two or three weeks out in the paddock digging up the fossils and you wrap them up and take them back to the lab essentially mm. you put them in a plaster jacket so they're all staying together in one piece Right. You know, like a plaster cast around, you know, like when you break your arm, you put it in a plaster cast so it doesn't move and it sure. stays in place. Exactly the same thing with fossils. Take it back to the lab, you open it back up again, and you get out your tools that you use to pull the rock away. So mostly just like tiny little jackhammers the size of a pen. Wow. Kind of thing. Like a sonic screwdriver. Yeah. Or, or dentist drills. Is dentist, little, little oh. dentist drill kind of things, essentially, yeah. And you just pick away you identify the bone bones it bones pretty easy to tell from rock once you know what you're looking at okay um the classic way to do it out in the field is if you, if you pick it up and you stick it on your tongue it's and it sticks then it's bone so so you've got a field full of uh, people, people digging up things and then putting them on their tongue. Yeah, I guess weird, weirder than that. Licking so them, if they yeah. go to a, if, if you see paleontologists go to an area they've never been to before, yeah, they get out, they start licking all the rocks and <laughs> eating all the dirt. Yeah. So if there's really salty salt content in the dirt, then that's obviously maybe a sea floor or something. So really? you're not really going to find dinosaurs there. And then, as Mitch was saying, yeah, if the bones are porous so if you lick them and they kind of stick to your tongue a little bit there's a bit of suction there you've probably got a bit of bone bit then of you bone. just try and find out where that bone came from that's yeah. that's a beautiful mental image yeah it especially is. after really you great. think remember what he said earlier about being in a sheep field yeah <laughs> so, so yeah. you're just pushing aside all the all well, the droppings i hope that you're not picking up yeah yeah you kind of got to wash everything first just just to be on the safe side but uh yeah and the texture is completely different to the rock as well. Okay. But you're just taking, with those little dentist drill, tiny little jackhammery things, you're mm. just taking away like full stop chunks of rock at a time. Wow. And you spend two or three weeks out in the field digging them up and then four or five years in the lab pulling. Just gently removing the rock. Gently removing. And it depends how much stuff you find as well. Yeah. Um, the digs for Banjo, the type specimen for Australovenator and that big sauropod were dug up in 2002. 2003 yeah and they've still got jackets of rock that they haven't even opened yet wow you remember some of these bones are the size of a car yeah <laughs> it takes a long time just to get them yeah one of the yeah. one of the bones sitting in the jackets um is a rib bone up up at winton is a okay. rib bone it's about three meters long that's that's a little bit much. That's that's a long rib. <laughs> I don't yeah. like to think about the the rest of that creature. Yeah. Given a three meter long rib. That's it. Well, wow. the really big ones are all the plant eating dinosaurs. So you stay away from their feet. Yeah, don't get trodden on. Yeah. But you don't have to worry about them sort of doing the whole Jurassic Park chasing you, wanting to snack on you kind of thing. Maybe you know. I mean, this is all obviously very hypothetical, listeners. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to be chased <laughs> I was by say, sauropods. I wanted to yell out serpentine like in uh, the <laughs> Land of the Lost movie, yeah. Yeah. trying to run out of, away from T Rex. Oh. Zigzag pattern. Well, I mean, I'm I'm super excited to continue talking to you guys about digging up bones and things. Um, but first, we got a track from Ivory Hours.
That was Mary by Ivory Hours. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX uh, 98.3 FM. If you're joining us online, thank you so much. You're not getting my lovely music, but you're getting our excellent chat about all things prehistoric. Uh, I'm joined in the studio today by Mitchell and Phil from the National Dinosaur Museum. And we're talking about things that we dig out of the ground um, that aren't boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, which isn't coal. Yeah. Oh, actually, coal is uh, fossil, what am I saying? <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, less less evil than coal. Coal's amazing, guys. Yeah, coal, you find some really amazing plant fossils in coal. Do you really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because um, I know it's like fossilised stuff, like plants and peat and bog and... yeah. One of the really cool things about Australia's coal is that it's so much younger than everybody else's. Okay. So most coal around the world comes from the Carboniferous. Mm. The carbon. Carbon. Ah, carbon- oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is this period where, you know, life's getting its foothold on land, essentially, and the world's covered with all these freaky giant swamps, which is producing all the plant matter for all this coal. Mm. Australia's, though, is much younger from the Permian. Problem was, Australia during those times was at the pole. Like, Canberra was pretty much the South Pole. Okay. And not a lot of heat, even like during really when like uh, the earth was really warm, the poles are still quite cool. So we never really got the big forests. We had to wait a little while to get our big forests. And so mm. all of our coal is a lot younger than that. Okay. That's, then, that's uh, quite... Um... I think coal, coal eating bacteria then eventually evolved. So then there will never be any more coal because it just will never form again. Cause mm. Wow. So it's, it's that... almost like it's a finite resource. It is, a, it is very much a finite resource. <laughs> Yeah. We should we... tell someone. <laughs> <laughs> has anyone has anyone looked into this? I mean, <laughs> that, that might be news to certain people. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. All right. Let's 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 go back to to the safe territory of of dinosaur bones. Um, <laughs> so I was we were, we were talking a bit before about lightning claw, the mm. collection of of um, fossilized material found at Lightning Ridge mm. um, in the nineties, but only just recently sort of published as a, a new discovery. Yeah. Um, and we we're talking about the fact that it's opalized and the connection between the great big inland sea um, and, and opalization. Um, and I think, I think the other night you were actually telling me, Phil, about a campaign uh, in the 90s to save a specimen, an opalized pliosaur? Yeah, there's been a couple of those. But, yeah, that, that was probably the most famous where because uh, uh, it, it was such a special, amazing specimen, there was a good chance that it was going to be sold to some overseas museum. Okay. So, yeah, there was a big uh, public campaign to try and build up the funds to save it. And uh, I, I, if I remember correctly, I remember buying cornflakes or something because they, you know, every, you buy a pack of cornflakes, a dollar out of every packet might go to saving Eric. The Eric. Yeah. All right. So it's so, Australia. We like to name things. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, old mate Eric, um, who was a, a plesiosaur or a pliosaur. A pliosaur. So they're both marine reptiles. Yeah. Not, not dinosaurs. Lived at the same time as the dinosaurs. But when you got pictures of those paddle flippered, turtle bodied with great big long necks and the so t- the, the Loch Ness monster yeah the Loch Ness monster yeah. essentially is what everybody pitches yeah if somebody um, pulled a snake through a turtle that's yeah. <laughs> what dealing with is the classic <laughs> description of them yeah um so is that those those animals are the plesiosaurs so, okay so the plesiosaurs have got the long necks and the small heads yep the pliosaurs are very closely related they belong to the same group of marine reptiles but the pliosaurs have big heads and short necks so like chronosaurus is a great classic um, pliosaur, um, Predator X, you know, that was another pliosaur that was pretty famous for a while because it was really, really big and hadn't got a proper name yet. So then how, how big are we X. talking if it's called something well, as hardcore well, as Predator Well, it was X. big and now it's small. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. They keep yeah. doing this to us. It's like they put it in the wash and they've, it's come out and it's shrunk. So and, uh, so they've re- that means they've actually rearranged how they think the bones were or other si- what, what more happens is other scientists then kind of step in and go, yeah, you're being a bit overenthusiastic there. Okay. Yeah. Especially when you've got stuff with weird proportions as well. Okay. So if it's got a boof head and you scale it to an animal that's more complete and then you get all of the rest of the bones out of the rock and it's kind of like, oh, it's, it's got a really big head but a smaller body than we expected. Sorry, guys. So yeah. a lot of the time we, we sort of extrapolate perhaps too much from a bone or a, a collection of bones we find and then yeah, have to go back and revisit it. Yeah, and that's why we're always looking for more fossils as well. So do you think if we caught the Loch Ness Monster and then did like a, a comparison to these prehistoric 
um, plesiosaur, pliosaur type creatures. What what kind of level of similarity you guys, guys uh, think we'd well, see? Well, see, I think the biggest. <laughs> so you I think, take, hang on, you hang take on. the invisible one. Yeah, the, the biggest, <laughs> the biggest, non-existent invisible one. The biggest difference is that the plesiosaurs and pliosaurs are real. Oh. Yeah, you guys. Um, but yeah, a lot of these. A lot sorry, of these, sorry. <laughs> did we just pop some <laughs> some emotional bubble? We burst some bubbles. I saw the Loch Ness monster. I actually did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was in I was in Scotland last year, and a group of about five of us saw it. I'm not even joking. Okay. And I'm how a much have we been drinking? And, yeah, well, I mean, you know, it was Scotland. We had sleeping, a or? we had a bottle of whiskey next to the lock, but it was it was legit. It was a it was a thing. Okay, show me. So the one of the great things that I love about all these animals like Loch Ness and Bigfoot and all that kind of stuff mm. you don't see as many pictures which makes a lot less sense because everybody's got cameras on their phones true and we we tried to take a picture um but uh, it didn't come out looking as good as it should have I mean it didn't really capture what we'd seen <laughs> uh, as is so often the case with selfies and things like that you know a bit of false advertising maybe, maybe these animals that are out there are just all blurry I think, yeah, yeah. they're just naturally yeah, they're, blurry yeah. creatures. Yeah. So you actually have to shake your phone when you take it to get a, <laughs> an accurate photo. <laughs> oh, but yeah, the the Aramanga Sea is what you find a lot of these fossils, well, where a lot of these fossils come from. Australia being covered in this great big inland sea, you'll find a lot more of these marine animals than animals like dinosaurs. So, yeah. And going back to what we were saying before about interactions, like the so the long-necked one in Australia was called Wollongasaurus, mm. and uh, it's actually got bite marks across its head it was killed by the really big crocodile chronosaurus headed one so uh, we can see a lot of uh, behavior between these things they were interacting and eating each other and and having a great old time i mean it sounds it sounds like just party central oh yeah big big great big inland sea so we've got a lot of you said said marine reptiles and they're not dinosaurs they're not dinosaurs and i know for a fact that you do get a little bit testy when people start using the term dinosaur indiscriminately we're yeah. talking about the Loch Ness monster <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah dinosaur is a specific group of animals it's not just all big extinct reptile things okay so, like the flying ones that everybody calls pterodactyl and the, and the other pterosaurs like pteranodon they're not dinosaurs either so okay. yeah dinosaurs you need to have your legs straight down under your body walking okay. up on your toes Mm-hmm. scales and eggs essentially okay so, so crocodiles do not have their legs straight down under their body so when when people sort of do the whole oh we've got living dinosaurs here in australia with crocodiles that's that's nope. it's birds. a lie it's bir- birds, birds are birds are dinosaurs. and very specifically rat heights like all birds definitely but rat heights the giant flightless birds like the emu and the the cassowary okay their fossil record goes right back into the dinosaur age so wow. they, like almost unchanged they've been uh kicking around and they've still got like uh, most people aren't aware, the ostrich actually has fingers. It doesn't have wings. Really? It's got three clawed fingers. The emu has one clawed finger. It's lost all its other digits, but it's still got a clawed finger. And uh, the cassowary has lost everything. It doesn't even have a shoulder blade. Mm. But if you've seen Jurassic Park, on their toe, they've got the big curly claw, which they like to disembowel you with. And if <laughs> anybody knows about cassowaries, I've heard that the cassowaries big claw. They're, they're you don't want to run into them. They're pretty aggressive animals. Yeah, the fossil record for birds is really good as well. Like even geese. They're, off, they're on Vega Island off Antarctica. They've found fossil, like, geese, duck-like birds from from Antarctica, from the late Cretaceous, so the end of the age of the dinosaurs. Wow. So yeah. So geese have just been kicking around. Geese have been kicking around for and ages And geese well. in Australia, we had the, the goose of all time. The, the biggest bird that ever lived was a giant goose really? called the Demon Duck of Doom or <laughs> Bullockornis. And it's got a very close, uh, which is slightly bigger, uh, Dromornis, but Demon Duck of Doom just sounds so much better. Demon and Duck of Doom. The, the, and these were during the, the, the basically the Ice Age, or the Big Dry, as we call it. Okay. You didn't really get the Ice Age here. Um, so these were big, you know, 22, 23-foot birds. Yeah. Wow. Goose, a goose the size of a very large camel, essentially. <laughs> yeah. With yeah. a head the size of a horse's head. So what yeah. what did they eat? I mean... They're all herbivores, it's great. Well, this, no, no, no. Um, oh, I feel like I've her- struck a nerve. They're herbivores, Phil. Or they're carnivores. Well... They, they could be. be omnivorous. They could be omnivorous. But um, it's such a big head and such a powerful beak that you need a reason for it. Like, yeah. What, what would be the reason for it? Like the hardest nut in the world, and Australia has some very hard nuts, but parrots can get into those, no problems whatsoever, and they've got tiny little beaks. So, so there why is would some you need this epic, for helping you get powerful... A and there is suggestions <clears throat> of some bones with weird cut marks on them that could be from big birds' beaks snapping on them or something. It's for helping you get a girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. The bigger and, the bigger your beak is. Yeah, cuz there's cuz there's a few species of these giant geese. Um the 
the ones with always the, have to be the one thing though. Yeah. You can do two things at yeah, once. Yeah, it can do two things at once. So the the ones with the really big heads are Bullockornis and Dromoornis, and they've got these enormous heads. You look at the bones from the rest of them as well, and it's really easy to tell the males from the females because the size difference between the sexes is really pronounced. Okay. But you've got another species, Jennyornis, hmm. which is another one of these really big flightless geese, and you don't see the giant heads on these genuineness they got sure. more kind of typical emu-y proportioned heads okay uh but you don't see this size difference between the sexes so maybe these giant heads is a giant placard like peacock's tail or antlers on deer it's for help so it's a for help it's sexual selection for helping you get a girlfriend maybe okay but they also fight with their antlers and take on predators yeah, well, with yeah. their antlers and so it's always and that's the problem you, it's you should never try and pigeonhole an animal just from a feature go not even well, a that pigeon feature, not even a pigeon not, no, definitely not even pigeon <laughs> Because they don't, because they don't only nest in pigeonholes; they also nest on cliffs and the tops of buildings <laughs> and other things like that. Or on the ground. Or on the ground. The yeah. dodo. The dodo is the world's, or was the world's biggest pigeon. Oh yeah, dodos were pigeons. Dodos were pigeons. And we shouldn't yeah. pigeonhole dodos. No. Okay, so I've I've learned a lot so far. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing I was going to say is, um, with those giant geese things, they were here. Like Aborigines have been here for sixty thousand years, and yeah. we do have some very serious cave paintings that suggest that they were seeing these things. Uh, wow. Walking around just by the body proportions and the way they've got their stature and thing, they're not emus. They're, they're not definitely emus, not emus. Yeah, because so, there's cave paintings of emus with yeah. them as well. And that, I mean, this is this is also challenging. One of the other things I think we get drilled into us at school is that, you know, these ancient creatures, dinosaurs, and and things that perhaps Mitchell wouldn't like me calling dinosaurs, <laughs> you know, and humans, they'd never coexisted. There was no crossover. But but there's sort of these amazing uh, megafauna, I yeah. guess, that perhaps. There was there was crossover. Oh yeah, definitely. So dinosaurs definitely not dinosaurs went extinct sixty five million years ago, except for the birds. Except for birds. And, except for and birds. the Loch Ness monster. And, and the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you've got all this other megafauna. So like your ice age animals, essentially, and our big dry animals here in Australia that did coexist with people. And there's lots of really cool evidence for this coexistence between humans and these these great big megafauna. Um, my my favourite example of this is animals from South America called Glyptodonts. It's essentially an armadillo the size of a small car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and big club, great big spiky mace. Oh, like, like its tail. I yeah. think I have seen pictures. Yeah, well, yeah. Illustrations, illustrations, not not photographs, not iPhone snaps, <laughs> Blur, blurry photos. <laughs> yeah, blurry photos. <laughs> yeah, it was in the it was in the Loch Ness. I, yeah. I saw one of these. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't a neck and a head. It was that great big club tail it's a huge sticking tail. up in the air. Yeah. So what? The size of size of si- a car. Size of a car, and you get smoke on the inside of the shells, like soot smoke. So these people are finding these giant car-sized armadillos, killing them, eating them, and then living inside their shells, <laughs> like. Oh, man. Like igloos. I mean, yeah, I can, little igloos. Um, igloos. <laughs> I can respect that level of, you know, respecting the, the whole creature. Yeah. You know, making it. use of everything. Yep, that's it's not it. just one-ton killing. Um. We had big Australian megafauna as well. We did have some pretty big Australian megafauna. Yeah, mostly marsupials. So, because we don't have, we didn't have, you know, cats and elephants naturally here. So we don't get mammoths and saber tooths. We had marsupials. So we got giant marsupials, like giant rhino-sized wombats called Diprotodon and uh, Thylacoleo, a large carnivorous. It's often called lion-sized, but probably leopard. really big leopard-sized. Okay. Uh, carnivores with amazing powerful bites and fantastic teeth and big clawed thumbs and um yeah you know we the problem is for most of our history we learn americans history or the books that we get you know at school are american textbooks or english textbooks so we haven't been really taught our own history and so you know that's part of our mission at the museum is to kind of show yeah no we had great stuff you know we we need to show you this because it's very cool so what would be like your your top sort of few favourite Australian big things or, or sort of prehistorical things? Megalania is definitely up there. Okay, Megalania. Meg- Megalania. Uh, so, so what was Megalania? Megalania is a goanna. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the Komodo dragon is a goanna as well. Yeah. Um, Megalania is a six metre long goanna. Six metres. Six metres. Like the top predator in Australia wasn't a mammal, it was a lizard. Wow. It was this absolutely massive, massive goanna. So what does a giant goanna eat? Whatever it wants. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that coming so far away. Yeah. 
It's like a car accident. Like, oh, well. Yeah, it's <laughs> that one. Um, How do you measure a six-metre goanna? Well, very carefully. Very carefully. Yeah, see, there you go. Yeah, that's it. On fire. Um, you get Mitch to do it. <laughs> you get Mitch to do it. <laughs> yeah, top predators are these giant goannas. Um, you don't find as many of them as you find um, mammalian predators, though, mm. because with a much slower metabolism, you need... Uh, need to have not so many of them around essentially sure. so they would also, also the problem is like the areas where a lot of these animals live in aren't very conducive for making fossils yeah, yeah. so you know uh, animals like mammals they need a lot of water so they're going to always be going to water sources and things so you know and we see it in africa all the time when the wildebeest are thousands of wildebeest are trying to cross the, the river and they get you know drowned and stuff and oh, of course and they get sort of bogged down yeah. and, and year after year after year there's going to be some decent fossils in yeah. that area at some stage okay um, where big reptiles, they don't really do that and they don't need to drink as much and they don't need to eat as much and they don't need to be, they can be in a warm area. So in a desert or something, they're not going to really find great fossils great out there. Fossils. So, um, Okay, so there's sort of, there's particular set of uh, conditions that are required for a fossil, fossil to form. form nicely or to mm. form at all? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the fossil record for Megalania is not as good as some other animals like these great big camel-sized geese. Um, but they were living alongside people as well. There was a new paper that was described a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago yeah. of a fossilised megalanium bone that was found in a cave in the same age as tools and stuff were being find, found in the same cave, like charcoal and stuff like that, indications wow. that there was megalania in the area at the same time as people. So you got these first Australians rocking up and going, oh, my God, look at that lizard. <laughs> That's a very oh, large lizard. That is a very, very large lizard. Um, also, another one of my favourites is Palorchestes. Palorchestes. So is related to Diprotodon, these giant lanky wombats. Yeah. Except it's got incredibly powerful forearms and this really weird skull. Um, we kind of think it might have had a trunk. <laughs> so, so not, not really an elephant trunk, more like a tapir, more like, a tapir, like a large yeah. tapir okay. trunk. So still a trunk, but... Yeah, it's not the So big. would it have been prehensile? Would they have been able to pick things up with it? And Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So sort of like a tapir wombat. A marsupial tapir, yeah. Wow. And they were just, what sort of, were they, would they have coexisted with our giant goannas? Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, I also heard rumours about a sheep-sized echidna, and I feel that we have to talk about a sheep-sized echidna because... <laughs> well, they're still alive today. Are they really? Yeah. yeah. So um, most people are just like a lot of these animals. We just assume you find them in Australia. Everyone forgets Papua New Guinea is actually part of Australia. Uh, it's you know it's the ice, same, same uh, continent. Yeah. Ocean levels have risen and you can't quite walk there. But uh, especially during the ice age when ice or the water was all trapped in the ice yeah. and ocean, ocean levels fall, you could walk from Papua New Guinea all the way down to Victoria and Probably. even parts of Tasmania for yeah. a little while. And um, so that's why there's cassowaries and a lot of marsupials are still in Papua New Guinea and the giant long-beaked echidna, which is one of the rarest animals on the planet. And they are big, big echidnas. Uh, they live on, only on certain mountains and hills and things like that, very remote. But um, yeah, like a quite freaky animal. And so we've known about them, but then, uh, yeah, it was actually Mitch who brought it up. They yeah, found a paper. Was, or, I, I, yeah, it was 2013, this... There's this specimen in the, nat the Natural History Museum in London of this echidna, this long-beaked echidna, mm. that was collected from the Kimberleys. Wow. Uh, 1901. Okay. Uh, this, yeah, this guy's out there collecting birds and mammals and stuff for the Natural History Museum in London, and he's just caught an echidna and going, yep, this is an echidna, write it all down, put the tag on it, send it off back to England. Yeah. Except it's not a short-beaked echidna, which is the only echidna you find in Australia. It's, it's one of the, it's a Western long-beaked echidna from Papua New Guinea, and, and it's such a remote area that yeah. they're probably still there. Like, just nobody—it's very hard to get into. So there could be this tiny little remnant population of these giant ice-aged echidnas are still out there somewhere, roaming around, happy as can be, do you hoping think, we never find them. <laughs> do you think they are blurry? <laughs> if we went and tried to take pictures of them, so if we sent a, a group of people out to the Kimberleys of with phone cameras, do you yeah. reckon we get some shots of them? I'm starting to think maybe we should just lose the phone camera. Yeah. <laughs> get some, get some, some proper real, equipment. Get, some proper get equipment. a nice DSLR and yeah. go out there. Well, there was, there was uh, in the paper, it mentioned one of the authors of the paper that came out in 2013 was doing some field work out in 
the Kimberleys mm. with an Aboriginal woman in her 50s as like a guide or you know assistant or whatever was happening. Yeah. Um, they found some echid- They found some scat and the person asked the Aboriginal woman what this scat was and she's like, oh, yeah, it's from echidna. Mm. Now, you know, having afternoon smoko later or whatever and they were talking about echidnas and this woman goes, oh, yeah, my grandma used to hunt the other one. Like, used to hunt the other one? The, the other one. Like, oh, yeah, the bigger one and like indicates an echidna that's about 40 centimeters tall so one of these long-beaked echidnas not these little short-beaked echidnas so there is like living memory in these people out in out in the kimberleys that they some of them remember these giant echidnas so that you need to get out there and talk to these people i feel like that's that's probably what i'm going to do after the show is book some flights (laughs) well the problem is we're dealing with australian aborigines who didn't write down the history so you have to be careful so a lot of our legendary creatures like um the bunyip Hmm. the bunyip was probably a story passed down passed down passed down of the giant diprotodons yeah that were becoming quite rare and you know the the only one one and billabongs and things so as australia's drying out they'd be getting quite aggressive around what few water sources are left and things. So yeah. because they pass on their history through stories, they'd be saying, you know, make sure when you go down there, don't find the bunyip because it'll get you. <laughs> uh, and the drop bear, you know, that's probably another one, which was the thylacoleo, the thing we were talking about, the big predator, which looks like it could climb trees. Yeah. So it's got thumbs. Yeah, white guys show up and the Aborigines are going, oh, and if you go under those trees, just be careful, something's going to fall on your head. Something will jump on you and eat you. May not have happened in 10,000 years, but... <laughs> but it's certainly on the cards. Yeah. That's that's incredible, and it's. I think it's it's really eye opening to look at look at Australia through those eyes because I think, like you say, we're we're so Americanized, and we sort of think about the Ice Age as being mammoths and saber tooths and you know dodos. I know were well. We think of the Ice Age. We didn't have the Ice Age. The no. Ice Age never happened in the Southern Hemisphere. It's we had just some. Well, by the sounds of it, it's probably not going to happen for a long time. We've got El Nino t- coming through. Tiny little glaciers. Well, yeah, on. for the next couple of years. Yeah. Tiny little glaciers on Mount Kosciuszko in Tasmania, but that's about it. No ice. Ah. Yeah. Well, you know, we missed out on that, but we did have giant echidnas. Yeah, yeah. Look, we're we're almost out of time, which is which is sad because I have so many more questions about <laughs> dipping fossils in acid and, and looking for <laughs> megafauna. Um, thank you guys so much for joining me. That's right. Thank you for having us. And thanks so much for listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. We'll podcast this episode, so if you've missed any of it, uh, get in touch. Um, thanks so much to 2XX for the slot. And... We will be back next week uh, with some more Science on a Sunday here on 2XX.